Hey there, I'm so pumped to tell you about an amazing new community I've launched called Grief to Growth Circle Community. It's a space for people who are grieving to come together to support each other and for people who want to know who we are, why we're here, where we're going to have those conversations, all the things we talk about on the podcast. So I invite you to join me at grieftogrowth.com slash community to become part of this compassionate crew. The best part is 100% free. And you have access to me in addition to everybody else in the community. In fact, the podcast will be there so you can talk about the things we talk about in the podcast right there in the community. There's also some premium content if you want to go deeper in the work I'm doing, but mostly it's about building relationships and community and about sharing resources and supporting each other. So come on over and check it out. It's grieftogrowth.com slash community. I'll see you inside. Hi there. Welcome to Grief to Growth Podcast. Your host is Brian Smith, spiritual seeker, best-selling author, grief survivor, and life coach. Brian believes that the worst tragedies of life provide the greatest opportunity for growth. Brian says he was planted, not buried, and he is here to help you grow where you've been planted by the difficulties in life. In each episode, Brian and his guests will share what has helped them to survive and thrive. It is his sincere hope this episode helps you today. All right, this is part two of a two-hour interview I do with my friend Srini. If you haven't watched part one yet, go back and watch part one first or listen to part one if you're listening on the podcast and then uh, go back and go ahead and watch part two. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, it, 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 we can easily break those arguments logically, right? Mm-hmm. Those, those arguments don't even stand the test of today's time, uh, let alone future. Yeah, they are very weak. The... There are two big questions in science today. I mean, there are many questions. I think the two biggest ones are, what does matter? I mean, uh, all these things that are, you know, make up the world, they made the things, right? What What is the stuff that makes up those things? So, you know, we started this journey. I mean, the Greeks started it. They said, you know, there's, there's all atoms. And then that you know, stayed for a thousand years. And then somewhere in the mid-19th century, you know, we restarted that work. And they said, oh, there's atoms, and, and then they split the atom, and then they found that there's some more stuff, bits inside the atom, and we've been splitting those bits, you know, uh, for the last hundred years. And we, every time we split the bit, we find, you know, find there's something else inside it. We still haven't figured out what is matter. Uh, and by matter, what I mean is like everything, uh, which is not just tangible, you know, things that we can touch and feel. I'm talking about energy, force. Gravity, all, yeah. Gravity. All of these things are, you know, expressions of something, one mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's expressing itself in different ways. And one of the ways it describes is material objects. And so this thing table that I, you know, sitting in front of the chair I'm sitting on seems very solid. But even science is telling me there's nothing there because like, you know, most of the atoms are you know empty mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, all minuscule mass. So there is some you know, beautiful magic trick going on here. And science is, you know, fascinated by this and they haven't figured it out. So there is this particle theory. They say there are 12 fundamental particles. And then there's another theory that says, uh, it's all a bunch of strings. You know, each particle is like a string and it, it doesn't really exist and it just oscillates. And every time it oscillates, you know, it manifests and then it doesn't manifest. And somehow these all, all of these at the building block level come together and create this illusion that something exists. Yeah. So this question is, what does matter? We don't know the answer. Honest to God, no scientist will claim that, you know, he or she knows the answer to this question. And it, there's nothing wrong with not knowing the answers. These, these people are really smart people. Like, mm-hmm. Fully respect them. Lack of answers does not mean a lack of competence. It's the way, nature of the journey. Right. The other big question uh, in science is what is consciousness? 
And uh, sadly, that question, we have made very little progress. We have done a lot of work on the world, studying the world. We haven't studied the most basic uh, uh, <laughs> aspect of ourselves, which is that we are conscious. Right. We do not know what makes us conscious. Right. The operating theory in science today, in neuroscience, which has just started studying this in the last 50 years, and some progress made in the last 20 years, that consciousness is a phenomenon that emerges out of the brain. Mm-hmm. And they are all in like frantically searching for where within the brain does this consciousness arise? I just kind of right? laugh. <laughs> and so, the, yes, it is. It is. Uh, it's. It's a little bit of a kindergarten stuff uh, mm-hmm. compared to the philosophers of India who studied this like you know, three thousand years back. Those guys were like way ahead. Of me, yeah. You know. Right. So. Uh, so that's that's the predominant view in science that you know it's so, I, so the way I would categorize so this is matter and consciousness. The other inter, uh, observation in science is these two are, are uh, treated as two separate questions. One is a question of physics, and the other is a question of neuroscience. Mm-hmm. But the ancient traditions, uh, you know, I, I've read treat them as connected. The question, mm-hmm. what matter and consciousness are, are connected, and there were these four schools of thought on on this. And, and and they're largely like, you know, based on what takes precedence. So there's the first school of thought that says matter is primary, mm-hmm. which is the modern view of the scientists today. And this, by the way, this view was there 4,000 years back. These were the materialists of the day. Yeah. They said matter is primary and the brain creates consciousness. And that's all there is to it. Matter dies eventually and, uh, you know, your consciousness will die and there is nothing more to it. And, you know, there is some, you know, hallucinatory experience that is going on that the brain creates, right? And they said there's not, that, that's all there is to it. Matter is primary and consciousness comes from the brain. That's the first school of thought. And the second school of thought is the exact opposite, which is consciousness is primary and matter is emergent from consciousness, mm-hmm. which is the, the theistic approach. The religions say that. Uh, God is a superconscious being and it is God who created the world with things in it. Right. Mm-hmm. So out of consciousness came matter, this creation. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the second school. And there's a third school of thought. This is a, you know, almost five, six thousand year uh, old thought, which says both are, uh, you know, parallel realities. Matter is, a, uh, they call it Purusha in uh, Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. It's called consciousness. And then Prakriti, which is not quite matter, it is this very fine, subtle field from which things emerge. And matter is not just, you know, uh, chairs and tables. It's also thoughts, emotions, concepts, ideas, anything, anything that can be tangi- you know, expressed okay. uh, and described is matter, right? Okay. So all these things, you know, uh, these two are parallel rea- realities and the consciousness is described as lame and a matter is described as blind. Hmm. So the blind, the lame uh, entity is being carried by the blind uh, um, if you think of them as two men, Interesting. The, blind, okay. the lame man is being carried by the blind man. Okay. And the, the man who can see is directing the man who can walk. Okay. So that is one school of thought. It is called the Sankhyan you know, philosophy. And Buddha, okay. Buddha was heavily influenced by this. Uh, and then there's a fourth, fourth school of thought, which uh, is the Vedanta school, the Brahman school, mm. which says they are not two different things. They are the same thing. Mm. Right. So there is the, the you know, when you, you, you are all, all of your folks debating, you know, which is, uh, you know, f- came first or which came second, uh, you, you know, you're barking up the wrong tree. They all came from the same thing. There's one mm. thing. Uh, matter is a one manifestation of a reality and consciousness is uh, another one. Uh, so matter is equated to existence. You know, the only reason we know something is matter is because it exists. So it's got a property. So it's a, so that those are the four schools. 
And, you know, I think I don't believe science has come anywhere close to having this level of sophistication. Right. That existed, you know, a few thousand right. years ago. I have no doubt they will. But there is a fundamental problem in studying consciousness as a, a as an object. If there is an object, then there's got to be a subject, an observer. Mm-hmm. Right? If it's consciousness that is make you know, creating our subjective experience. It is like, you know, I have a personal subjective experience mm-hmm. every moment of my existence. Yeah. And so it is a very subjective uh, uh, experience. And if I, how, how would I objectify it as in who is that person that is observing it then? Right. So it sort of, you know, logically lends itself to saying it's got to be the primary phenomenon here. Yeah. And that is the argument that's been made over, you know, several thousand years back. Yeah, it's kind of like seeing your own eye. You know, you 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 can't see your own eye. You know, so, so that's when we try to look at consciousness. It's like from what what how can we separate ourselves from it in order to see it? We just it's inferred. You know, yes. we we just have to take not take it on faith because we experience it. So, yeah. I think it's a big assumption or a uh, 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 a big area to pivot around because uh, you know I was having this uh, email exchange with uh, a physicist called Sean Carroll. He writes on time. He's a you know, physicist at Caltech, and he did a podcast, and they were talking about this matter mm-hmm. of consciousness. Yeah, I've heard he of says, him. You know, he, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm 100% sure the consciousness comes from the brain. We'll, it, just give us some time. We'll figure it out. I'm a physicist, but you know, I'm going to let my neuroscientist colleagues figure it out, and they will tell you. But mm-hmm. take it to the bank, right? So I, uh, you know, I had this email exchange with him. And I said, like, how do you know what you're observing is true? Because it's happening in your consciousness. Right. <laughs> and... It so happens that when your experience and my experience agree, we call it a fact. Mm-hmm. That's all right. there is to it. Right? Yeah. And so, I, I, you know, isn't, isn't there something deeper? And, you know, we, we had one or two exchanges and he, and he sort of trailed off. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that is the fundamental question. Like, you know, science is in the context of, you know, our experience. And so it seems like they are going to hit a dead end at some point. If they yeah. continue to treat consciousness as something that is objectifiable, if they were to flip it and say it is the primary source, it could lead to some very interesting, you know, developments in physics, in my opinion. Well, one thing you just said there, I want to, I want to go back over because I think it's so important. You said it, it just so happens when your experience and my experience agree, we call it a fact because we do, we. And it makes sense. We value the things that you and I both, if we both look at a picture on a wall, we agree that picture exists. But if I only see it, we call that subjective. And so there's all this, there's a whole subjective world that goes on that I have an experience and people dismiss those things because you can't observe it. So anything that goes on in my consciousness, you literally can't observe. Mm -hmm. So we we have this, we, we call this objective world because it's something that we can both agree on that experience, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that my experience that you don't experience is any less important or any less real. Right. And so we dismiss things like near death experiences. A lot of scientists mm-hmm. will dismiss them because they're not observable. Yes. But it doesn't or mean repeatable. they're not real yeah. or, or repeatable, repeatable yeah. and observable. That's what yeah. science studies yeah. yes. things that are repeatable and observable. But yeah. we also science, that's when they get freaked out when they start introducing consciousness, which consciousness is in every experiment. But when they deliberately introduce consciousness, then they go, well, how can this happen? The double slit experiment. When I observe a particle, it looks like a particle. When I, when I don't observe it, it looks like a wave. How can mm-hmm. this How can this be? Because my consciousness can't af- affect the objective world. Mm-hmm. I, I think some of the, the, the scientists who went uh, down the rabbit hole in quantum um, physics 
saw the the truth in some of these uh, the brahman theories especially the upanishads upanishads are the scriptures from which these uh, statements were made mm-hmm. uh, they are part of the vedas which are the scriptures of the hindus so schrodinger for example the quantum physicist you know he said the the one the one consolation of my life has been reading the upanishad mm-hmm. and he found a great resonance with the the philosophers of uh, their time they yeah were, they were doing different things they were engaged in different pursuits one right. was one was the one group was trying to figure out uh, the happiness you know equation and schrodinger was just trying to figure out you know the world yeah but and they found a lot of common ground uh, i think that that's a it's very revealing in the sense that science is about making life convenient mm-hmm. but life has to be worth living in the first place you know that is not our primary consideration right yeah. we, first life has to make sense then we comes the convenience part yeah. uh, religion makes our life worth living i mean practice properly and that that's what religion sort of gives us when i say religion spirit i mean the spirituality religion all as this i don't believe them to be separate things mm-hmm. i think they are the same thing and so there is you know you can have a very uh, convenient life filled with great unhappiness that's not what we are shooting for right so i don't see these two as adversaries rather i think it's somebody says you have to pick between science and faith i would say you're giving me a false choice you're putting me in a very difficult position right. uh, i i don't not i i don't see myself as having to choose between the two and they have their context uh, in my life so you know yeah Yeah, there's there's confusion about what science is because what a lot of people call science is actually materialism. You know, mm-hmm. science and I and I, I I say this all the time and people are get sick of me hear me saying it but science is a method. Science is a methodology. It should not be a philosophy. Right. Um and it, and it's not there to tell us everything. And I love the way you put that. Science is not here to make us happy. It's here to make life convenient. Right. But meaning is what makes us happy. You know, right. knowing who we are is what makes us happy. And and we kind of talked about this, you know, um last week and if we don't if we don't figure out why we're here, if we don't figure out our purpose, if we don't figure out who we are. And when I was in Sunday school, one of the brilliant things they said was everybody's made with a god-shaped hole. Mm. And they were talking about the god, you know, the guy sitting on the throne, mm. but I think that was a brilliant observation. As as human beings were always seeking to fill that that void that we have in us, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Mm. And science doesn't answer any of those questions. Right. I I uh, uh the, the uh, uh my thoughts on on this will evolve over time I'm confident because I feel like some of them have uh, um, mm-hmm. come up in my mind off late. so i will caveat uh, before i say this mm-hmm. uh my uh, observation at least of myself is that uh, fear rules a lot of what we do mm-hmm. uh you know it is uh, and, and these these are all different manifestations of something uh, fundamental fear is one major manifestation so what i mean by that is when i'm happy i fear that i'm going to lose my happiness the immediate reaction is oh i i shouldn't be so happy i should you know i i i have no business being so happy and something mm-hmm. is going to happen here so we live in this fear and you know it it uh, you know it uh, destroys our you know our uh, our ability to be happy mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's a very human thing to do uh so the the, the question uh, sort of becomes what is it that you know how do i overcome this fear you know how do i know i'm going to be okay yeah Yes. Be, we want to know am I going to be okay? Yes. I mean when I say I it's like you know are we going to be okay? I mean all of us are and the, the answer is yes. And so this there is some faith aspect to it uh mm-hmm. saying believing I am going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh and 
to to be able to sort of live that belief requires uh, some training and practice. Mm-hmm. This is what our religions teach us, right? Yeah. Uh, they say it in different forms. God is going to take care of you, or you know, Buddha says, you know, uh, 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 control your mind, wield it like an instrument, just like how you drive a car, drive your mind. When you get on top of it, you'll be okay. So they they all said it in different ways, but depending on whichever path is easier for us, you know, we can take that. And but I think the the bottom line or the learning there is, you know, we are going to be okay, and we have to believe that. Wow, that was yeah, that was so brilliant. You're right. That is the ultimate question that we always have: Are we going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? You know, and. And it doesn't mean that we're going to have a carefree life. It doesn't mean that we're never going to have any trouble, but we know that we're going to be, you know, okay. And um, yeah. And I think that's, that's right. You know, religion and spirituality, that's what gives us, you know, that, that faith, that, that peace, that comfort that, you know, if I know that I am divine, if I know that I am eternal, Mm -hmm. if I know that, Everything will pass, you know, the good and the bad, you know, you're right. When we're happy, we're worried about, well, how long am I going to be able to hold this? But when we get this broader perspective, you know, the way I look at it is like when I'm, when I'm having a good moment or a good thing, I cherish it even more because I know yes. that it's not going to last. Yes. But if I'm going through a tough time, I'm like, I know that's not going to last either. And that gets right. me through the tough time. So this, this, we can make time, this temporal existence, our, our, our ally and know that that which I came from, I will ultimately return to no matter what happens between here and there. Mm-hmm. Yes, truer words have never been said. I uh, I'm reminded of a story. I, I'll say it. You can cut it out if you know if you don't have time. Uh, no, no, part. go ahead. So there is this story. I love the story, uh, and I love telling the story. So there is this king uh, in, in India, ancient times. Um, and he's going through this really rough period. There is a famine in the land. Enemies are attacking all around him. People are unhappy. You know, he's got his personal sickness. You know, everything that can go bad is going bad at that mm-hmm. moment. And this Buddhist monk happens to be traveling through the land. So, you know, this monk comes to visit the king. And the king, uh, he asks the king, how are you? And the king says, not so good. You know, it's, things could be much better. Uh, everything has gone to hell. Mm-hmm. Right? And the monk says, uh, don't worry. This too shall pass. And he leaves. Um, and uh, 20 years later, uh, now by this time, everything has changed. The, the, the kingdom is prosperous. The king's uh, son has grown into a into handsome prince, is ready to take over. The people are extremely happy. All is, everything is going perfectly well. Mm-hmm. And the monk happens to be passing through the land. So he comes to visit the king. And he asks the king, uh, what, uh, uh, how, how are you? And he says, things are good. You know, since we last met, everything has changed much significantly. About everything. He reels off all this list of things that are going well. And the monk looks at him and says, this too shall pass <laughs> and leaves. So it's this great wisdom from the Buddha. He says the impermanence of things. And yeah. the, the happiness actually comes in understanding the impermanence of this world. It is yeah. a very counterintuitive thing. Impermanence leads to grief normally. Uh, but happiness can uh, actually come out of it. In the sense that there is something that we are given a, a certain privilege of, uh, you know, experiencing for some period of time or whatever. And we understand intuitively that everything is important. Even God is considered impermanent in the Eastern mm-hmm. traditions, right? Even uh, the creator, we call him Brahma. He has a lifespan of 100 years mm-hmm. in the Hindu mythology. Mm-hmm. So Brahma dies at the end of 100 years. 
And that's like, you know, in 300 trillion years in modern time. But even that Brahma, the creator, the one who created everything in the mythology, I'm saying, mm-hmm. not the Brahman, but this is a right. Brahma, it's a different, it's a God. Okay, okay, okay. Gods die, gods yeah. die in, uh, in some of these traditions. So the, 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 the idea that something, there are two ideas, I think, which are very powerful from the Eastern thought that I would like to share. One mm-hmm. is nothing is destroyed forever. Everything comes back. Mm-hmm. That is a very powerful idea. Nothing ever goes away. It's like once it's gone, it comes up in a different uh, place. And then everything is changing or things are, you know, impermanent. Mm-hmm. And if we, these are uh, uh, connected truths. And in, 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 when we see the interplay of these two truths, uh, there is great potential for us to derive happiness. You know, yeah. uh, it is uh, uh, difficult to specify it in tangible terms, but we take it and apply it to our lives. We find that you know uh, uh, we can get some peace out of it. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's um, you know the thing is, and I learned this from a little bit of studying Buddhism. This idea of, of letting go and impermanence, which is again counterintuitive, because we want to hold on to the things that make us happy, which is what causes us suffering because we can't hold on to literally anything. So we, you know, the, uh, there's um, I'm, I'm actually interviewing a woman right now. I'm in the process of interviewing because she's paralyzed, so it's a, it's a back and forth process. But um, she has ALS and, you know, so slowly things are being stripped away from her. And but she she studied Buddhism before she got this. So she she realizes that, you know, everything is impermanent. As I'm reading her book and and she says something so brilliant. She says everything in life, life is always setting us up for for death, the final transition, because everything comes in our life and goes away. It comes and it goes. And we learned we have to learn to let things go. We, we're in high school and we graduate. We go to college. We get out of college. We get our job. We we have our children, our, our, even our child, my cherished children. You know, one has already passed to the next world. But my other one's she's 25 now. She's an adult. She doesn't live here anymore. Mm-hmm. So that I, I mourn the loss of my my child, that baby that I had, because I, I want her back. Yes. But you know, so Me everything, too. everything is impermanent, and but even death is impermanent. So that leads us to talk yes. about, you know, what is what is death? What and how do you view you view death? You know, what it, what it is? I, I I think similar to you know every other question, I, I view the question of death as a, a series of different types of truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are multiple truths with regards to death, mm-hmm. and uh, each truth applies depending on where we are. In our journey, and it, you know, it could be the truth for us at that time. Yeah. So the the options are, you know, I think the laziest explanation for death is that it is the end of everything. Mm-hmm. I find it a very lazy explanation. It comes from nihilism, you know, guys like Nietzsche and like you know, a whole bunch of existentialists in France and Western philosophy largely said this is it. You know, when you die, lights go out, and that's all there is to it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, it seems possible, but it seems very lazy way to think about it. Uh, especially when you see a lot of evidence to the contrary in nature, nothing just goes away. Things come back. So, you know, the idea that death is uh, sort of permanent uh, doesn't make sense to me. Um, uh, th- then there is the, the Christian view or the Islamic view, which is when we die, there is an eternal self and which survives death. And then we reach some place, uh, either heaven or hell, depending on, you know, the, the, the dispensations of uh, what we did uh, in life. Uh, that's it's it's a step forward. I would say clearly a step forward from the, the from the uh, nihilist and atheistic you know view that there's nothing going on after death. Uh, but there is this idea that something survives death in Christianity. I find that very interesting, 
And then you have the Hindu and the Buddhist view that says when you when we die, uh, there is a subtle aspect of ourself uh, that survives and uh, takes uh, possession of a physical body uh, in, a, in the next cycle and is reborn. Mm-hmm. So the, no, the, the Hindu view of death is its beginning of uh, the process of being reborn. And life is the process of uh, starting to die, right? Mm-hmm. The, the cycle. Uh, and sorry, the Buddhists uh, believe that too. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find that the most interesting, you know, uh, plausible, if you ask me. Um, because it, it, for me, logically, it explains a lot of things. And this is sort of related to karma, right? The, um, the whole idea of karma is a law of cause and effect. It's, it's a cause and effect principle. I think it's very straightforward. It's commonsensical in some sense. It says if you do something, you will get something back in return. The consequences are guaranteed. That's what the law of karma says. I, I find it intuitively, you know, uh, 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 right in the sense if I if I if I'm rude to you, you will be rude back to me. Uh, you know, I've seen that happen in my life, and it makes sense. It's possible. Right. But I think the the difficulty in the karma is uh, sometimes that you know the consequences are separated in time from action. That's the non-intuitive part. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we do some things, and I, I've done something, and I think I've gotten away with it. Not so fast, buddy. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to come, right? So that is where the belief comes in. And what span of time are we talking about? Multiple lifetimes. This is like, there is this idea of rebirth. And, you know, you, we come back and we carry the karma and the luck and the baggage of, you know, what we have done in the past. It's both good and bad. It's not necessarily negative. If you have done good things, you, know, you will, good leads to good, Bad leads to bad. It's a very simple equation in the law of karma. But the it makes uh, one think, oh, wait, like, am I going to be weighed down by, you know, let's say I've lived a million lives and all my, you know, I've been a jerk, you know, for most of it. Mm-hmm. Am I doomed? Right? It's, right. It, right. Uh, am I done? I mean, right. like, no. am I going to like, you know, be in this loop forever? And the answer is no, because there is the possibility of seeing things a different way at every moment. Why that happens and how that happens, like in the cases of you and me, there was some life event that made us think a certain way mm-hmm. when our daughters were born, right? It, in, uh, when we become a, a parent, when we get married, when we have a life partner, that's that's a life changing. All of a sudden, you have to care about someone else, right? Right. Uh, so the, the little things change uh, changes. Something could happen uh, in the world that could change us, uh, make us you know uh, look at things a different way. I don't know how that happens. But, you know, we have, we have the potential to change. Mm-hmm. And we see that too in our lives. We have seen people transform. We've seen ourselves change. Right. Uh, so change is possible. So we know that. So I think that is where the, the positive part of karma comes in. Until this moment, we have the, the weight of our destiny. Meaning what is happening right now, the fact that I'm speaking to you, is a chain of events that started somewhere. In the right. distant past. Mm-hmm. But what my life is going to look like in the future I control right now by my actions towards you, by the words I you know, choose, by my attitude, and mm. like by, by my ability to you know calm myself down and be able to see the truth. And the uh, the more and more we see the truth, the more and more we liberate ourselves from the cycle. This is yeah, I, I, yeah. I love what you, the way you put that because the thing about karma, um, again, it's I think it's misunderstood a lot by people here, and, and I was taught that karma was okay in Christianity. They're like, well, we have grace. And the Eastern religions, they just have karma. So there, it's a, you, there's no grace there. There's no, there's no forgiveness. There's no escaping from, you know, you did something bad, then something bad is going to come back. 
to you. And which also brings up the question, what is good and what is bad? So when you were telling your story about impermanence, it reminded me of a Dallas story about the nature of good and bad, where the farmer goes out and he finds a wild horse and the, all the village villagers come to him and say, that's a great thing. You found a wild horse. And he says, maybe. And then the next day, his son's out breaking the wild horse and he falls off and he breaks his leg. And the villagers all come and they say, it's a terrible thing that your son broke his leg. And he says, maybe. And then the next day, the army's coming through and they're conscripting people in the service. The son can't go to war because he's broken his leg. And so you know how the story goes. We we judge what's good and bad, but we don't know. We we don't. So when we say, if I do something bad, something bad's going to happen to me. So when a lot of, again, parents, a child will pass away and they'll say, well, what bad thing did I do? What did I do to cause this bad thing? Well, how do you know it's bad? You know, we don't we don't have that perspective to know it, it might have been their soul plan. It might have been their time to go back. And if we be, if we truly believe what Christians say that we believe that they are in heaven with God, then how is that a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I yeah I agree. The I didn't, the, the, I I the, there is a framework I have you know, put together for myself, which is I feel like there is a set of core beliefs that we have. Mm-hmm. These are maybe stated or unstated. Uh, they're very small in number, one, two, maybe three. Typically one or two, I think. And it, it's got to do with either something of the belief about who we are or uh, what is God. or one of the, it's, it's literally one of these questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and we sometimes uh, like, uh, you know, state it very consciously like we're doing right now. We're having a very conscious, aware discussion about these questions. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we don't, uh, you know, promote, a good part of our lives we didn't. Right. We carried these beliefs around, mm-hmm. and something or the other is there. Um, so this belief uh, animates everything else. Uh, our version, our, our views of good and bad, all the morals, uh, you know, our view of the world. These are transactional beliefs. They can change. They will change, and they will change Where as we go older, or you know, go to a different place, or you know, depending on mileage, you know, we you know we see one thing or the other working for us. These are very sort of transient. But those one or two beliefs that we carry, they make a big difference to our happiness. The transactional beliefs may make a difference to our prosperity, our health, our, you know, like, it's, I should not smoke. It's a transactional, transactional belief. Um, I should, uh, you know, be kind to others. It's a transactional belief because if I'm kind to others, you know, I will be treated well in society and there is a quid pro quo, you know, aspect to it. It has, you know. But it all. Uh, what I've, I realized is these beliefs are have to will uh, if, for them to be strong. They have to be supported by a core belief. Uh, this is uh, uh, sort of the argument people have made against atheism, saying that if you don't have a, if your core belief is a negation of another belief, it makes it very hard to be uh, happy. Mm. You could be highly moral. Because yes. you simply have the discipline, you will just like sort of soldier through it by yeah. being a very good person. But yeah, happiness I, is eludes us. You know, you could be a very good person and be unhappy. Yeah, I think well, yeah, it's interesting because uh, a lot of times people say, well, if you're atheists will be amoral because they don't have any real beliefs. And I, I found the exact opposite. Most atheists I know are very moral people. It's like, a, and I'm analyzing, but it's almost like they're overcompensating. Yes. They're like, I don't need, I don't need religion to be moral. I'm going to be more moral than those Christians are. Yes, yes. But, um, you, you know, you and I talked about this when we kind of did the pre, pre-show last week when we were just kind of uh, going through some ideas, 
we all have a core philosophy. I'm just going to say what you said kind of a different way. We all have a core philosophy. And I've never really been interested in philosophy. I, I always thought it was kind of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. But we do, whether we believe, whether we know it or not. Mm-hmm. And and that philosophy informs our life. It, it, it literally impacts every decision we make. We'll get back to grief to growth in just a few seconds. Did you know that Brian is an author and a life coach? If you're grieving or know someone who is grieving, his book, Grief to Growth, is a best-selling, easy-to-read book that might help you or someone you know. People work with Brian as a life coach to break through barriers and live their best lives. You can find out more about Brian and what he offers at www.grieftogrowth.com, www.grief2growth.com, or text GROWTH, G-R-O-W-T-H, to 31996. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash grief to growth, www.patreon.com slash G-R-I-E-F, the number two, G-R-O-W-T-H, to make a financial contribution. And now, back to grief to growth. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm testing out a new feature. I'd love to get your feedback on it. It's called Fan Mail, and you can send me a message right from the show notes of the podcast. So look for the link that says send me a text. You can ask a question for a future podcast. You can suggest a guest or just give me any feedback you want. Just remember, it is one way I can't text you back, and I will not have your name, your email address, or your phone number unless you include it in the message. Let me know what you think. If we think the world is a transactional place, we're going to behave in a transactional way. If we if we choose to be a good person for goodness sake, then we're going to be probably a happier person. Mm -hmm. If we know that we are this divine being and in a temporary situation and that you're a divine being in a temporary situation, it's going to impact the way I interact with you. It's going to it's going to even impact that transactional thing. Mm -hmm. Um, If I know if I believe I'm going to have a life review, which I do. And I know that I'm, you know, I might be in a store, I might smile at somebody and who knows what kind of day they're having. And it could change your life. It's going to impact the way that I treat even strangers. Absolutely. Um, Beautifully said. So all the, all this is just, it's it's so important that we, that we do examine these things. And Mm -hmm. you're right. We go through life a lot of times, totally unconscious, totally unaware. I'm sorry. carry them around. Yes. I'm saying we, you know, like it or not, you know, whether we're articulating it or not, they are there. And Absolutely. we don't, you know, it's better to be conscious of what they are, understand, you know, what they are and why they came to be, you know, in our, in our minds or in our, in our thing and then see if they're true. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good exercise, right? So, uh, yeah, I, the, this whole aspect of philo- is philosophy practical, right? I mean, the biggest fear when we talk about things like Brahman or, you know, Buddhism or, the highest, uh, you know, the, 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 the exhilarating aspects of Christianity or Islam. The fear is that it, all of them teach us to be selfless. It's a very core idea in religion. That mm-hmm. it, it's selflessness is the core idea, right? Yeah. So to be selfless, you have to understand yourself. And they, there are different techniques. One is, you know, by looking at God, you see a reflection of yourself, or you look at yourself and to see a reflection of God. It's all the same thing. But mm-hmm. there are like, you know, ways of understanding. Once you understand yourself, the idea is that you will become selfless because you see the self is the same as, you know, Ryan and Srini are the same mm-hmm. self uh, thing. And the problem with that is it, it creates this fear of the selflessness 
we see in this world is not rewarded the world punishes people who are uh, generous or you know we've seen that it's not always the case but selflessness we worry will lead to us losing in some way mm. you know it'll either you know we will lose our career or our relationships or bank balance you know what's going to nice people finish last is like the expression we hear especially in the western culture it's not yeah. so much in india right our flight is it's happening in india too in, in in the us it's all the you know uh, fashionable thing to say that nice guys finish last and you have to you know go get it and you know so the, the whole selflessness is not does not get a lot of prominence so we worry about that mm-hmm. i think the way to think about it is that if you do not understand yourself you cannot do a good job of anything that you're trying to do right whatever it is that you're trying to do and counter it is counterintuitive if we actually invest our time in making ourselves happy we are going to be very very valuable to this world mm-hmm. imagine a scientist who has you know understood the greatest mysteries of quantum mechanics has also understood the nature of you know his or her own self what a combination that that person will transform this world mm-hmm. we don't find those people and when those people come along we call them jesus or you know buddha or you know yeah. those right yeah. but I, I, we can be the one of those people i mean i mean, I'm, i don't say this in any arrogance i'm saying it is the nature of creation that we all have that kind of capacity mm-hmm. to be that way and you know just the journey makes a big difference yeah just yeah. being on the journey we don't have to worry about if we'll get there and and it looks very daunting it is impossible for me to sit here and think that i'm going to be the buddha someday yeah it's like such a distant you know thing but the journey this the very small incremental you know things make a big difference that's the the leverage is this phenomenon yeah absolutely. a small effort yields big results yeah absolutely totally agree there's one one other concept that we wanted to discuss it was in our list of things we want to talk about rebirth or reincarnation now i i'll just kind of go first and and say that as a christian i was raised to believe that there's no such thing as reincarnation mm-hmm. it's one and done you're in you're out uh what i found out later on in life that there was reincarnation in the bible that was actually removed by the guys in the early church because they frankly it's about control they want to say you're one and done you have to go to the church if you don't go to the church and do all the things we tell you to do god's going to send you to hell for eternity so i know a lot of christians are still hung up on the idea of reincarnation but so i want you to talk about the eastern idea of reincarnation and then we'll kind of see where we maybe can kind of come together sure um a quick observation on christianity right uh, or the the uh, islam and christianity the the idea is that there is an eternal self a uh, soul that survives mm-hmm. death and you know goes to god so there is the idea that something survives and mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a small leap from there to saying that that soul survives in a different body it's just we're, we're talking semantics at this point if mm-hmm. something survives death that is the big hurdle to overcome the, the big hurdle to overcome is does something survive death or not right. and the moment you know we are on the other side saying something survives then it becomes a matter of details i i find it sometimes i i, I I find it uh, sort of strange that the Christians uh, don't uh, uh, like the idea of reincarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect it is there is this uh, 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 sense of false urgency that has been created by the early practitioners of Christianity. They said, oh, I have to close this deal, right? To close this deal, if I tell these people they're going to live another hundred lives, no one's going to close the deal in this life. Right. So if I have to close the deal and convert this guy, I got to tell him, you know, he's going to hell uh, in the next 10 years. uh else this you know he's not going to see the light so i i can see some of the tactics in play mm-hmm. that influence some of these beliefs but i agree with you i think the, some of the 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 the, the gospels uh you know hinted 
in a rebirth. Mm-hmm. Even Jesus hint, I think, hints at it um, in some of his sayings. He does. The Eastern belief in rebirth is, uh, you know, simple observation of nature. I mean, they, 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 they were asking all kinds of questions like us, like the way we do today. Who am I? What is God? How, what is creation? And they looked around the world and it contains so many beautiful things. And the, the question was like, how did these things come about? And so the, 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 the theory that they came to was everything started at, with some fine, you know, indescribable, subtle, you know, thing. Mm-hmm. And then it evolved. So th- there's this theory of evolution uh, in mm-hmm. Hindu philosophy, which is not quite like Dar- uh, a Darwin's theory. I mean, in the sense that it, they're similar in the sense, both are theories of evolution. So it starts with something fine. The theory is something subtle evolves into something gross or material. That's the nature of creation. So you have something very fine. It keeps on, you know, morphing until you reach this very phenomenal world that we find ourselves in. But there are many other things that we are, are not aware of because of the nature of our senses and we live in this constrained world. Uh, so the idea is that whatever trans- one transforms into another and you know, nothing ever goes away. Mm-hmm. The whole idea that something can just permanently go away for some reason has never taken root in the Indian mm-hmm. psyche. Mm, the strangest thing. And yeah. actually, it's quite a brilliant uh, you know, a thing. There, is not, not much, uh, uh, but there are not too many buyers for death is permanent. Mm-hmm. Or you know, so when something happens, this is the end. Now, there are not too many takers. There's this whole you know, belief system that revolves around cycle. Even time is cyclical, right? Uh, is what the, the, uh, the Buddhists and the Hindus say. So the whole idea of reincarnation or rebirth comes from that. That things don't go away we get to you know, come back. The, the big question there becomes, who gets to come back? Is it Srini who gets to come back in the next life? And how do I know it's Srini? And because I clearly don't remember what happened in my previous lives, mm-hmm. right? So what is the point of this thing? And so the point of uh, you know, being reborn, there is no point or purpose. Like the, nature is not, or creation is not created so that it you know, gives you some convenient explanations for your current existence. I think the way these beliefs have to be sort of looked at is in the context of how we can bring peace to ourselves. Hmm. Yes. And peace comes, you know, we notice this peace comes when we understand something and believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. It's, whether it's a good truth or a bad truth, it's unpalatable or palatable. When we find there's some reason that we latch on to something is, you know, mm-hmm. we say it's true, we, it gives us peace. And that is the context in which these statements were made. Mm-hmm. So I would say some of the, the, there are these truths that we are reborn. Uh, you know, we go through the cycle, we have to play out this thing. And until we realize that there is this cycle going on, we are condemned to the cycle. The moment you realize that the cycle is how things operate, you sort of uh, elevate yourself about the physical aspect and the mental aspects of existence, and you're liberated. That is sort of the yeah. view. And th- there is another view, which is the Vedanta view, which says everything is uh, a wave of, you know, ocean of consciousness in which mm-hmm. things come and go. So what you think of as birth and what you think of as death are superstitions. Mm. These are simple, merely experiences mm. that your mind is, uh, or your con- in your consciousness. Mm-hmm. So when you're born, that's an experience. When we die, that's an experience. When we sleep, that's an experience. When you're awake, that's an experience. When we dream, that's an experience. These are all a whole collection of experiences. And a person who understands that, the nature of consciousness liberates uh, himself or herself. 
so you have quite so the vedanta would directly you know negate the karma theory saying that you know there is no such thing as birth or death and mm-hmm. again i like i, I liken them to you know, two different belief systems lower higher truth and depending mm-hmm. on where you are you know one mm-hmm. it's it's uh, and they are just convenient constructs depending on who we are as a as a as a person at a point yeah and we hold on to them they teach us something until we are ready to you know uh, accept something else stay with us we'll be right back hi there i'm really excited to tell you about my latest ebook it's four lessons that you can learn from the near death experience without going through all the trouble of dying to learn them I've been studying NDEs for several years now. I am completely convinced that not only are they 100% real, but that there's some very universal wisdom that we can get from the near-death experience. And I've distilled that down in this book into four short lessons. And I've also given you all the reasons why I believe that NDEs are absolutely real. So go to www.grieftogrowth.com slash NDE lessons to pick it up for free www.grief2growth.com slash NDE lessons. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's the thing about the idea of death and rebirth, because I've gotten it from several different ways now. You know, there's there's soul planning, there's life between lives. So we go and we come back. Um, and I've, I'm learning a little bit about the Eastern view of it. I don't think it's as simple as a one-for-one one thing. I don't think it's as simple as like, I, Brian, die and come back, and then I'm going to be John in the next life, and then I'm Mary in the life after that. I think I think we're almost a collection. Our souls are more like a, almost like, a, I hate the word Borg because it has such a negative connotation, but Star Trek, the collective, you know, we're all, we're, we, we have this higher aspect of ourselves. So I, as Brian, I'm just a small part of a more complex being, for lack of a better word. And when I go back, I share my experiences with the whole, they all, they all get to experience it, but I don't, I don't come back. Brian doesn't come back, but there's another aspect mm-hmm. that there's just kind of this, this interchange as we go back. And this is, uh, I interviewed someone a couple weeks ago, but uh, a series of books she wrote called the team. And it really resonated with me that we're not, we're not the individuals that we think we are. Mm-hmm. So, but I think there's, there's absolutely, there's so much evidence for some idea of rebirth or reincarnation, you know, uh, the work that was done at the University of Virginia with children with past life memories. I mean, just incredible stuff, prodigies, people that come into this world, you know, that can play the piano at the age of two and, um, you know, people with, uh, past life memories and have birthmarks where they were, you know, they were shot in a previous life. So there, there's absolutely something to it. And I love what you said about the peace thing though, because I have a friend. And uh, she, she was raised as a Christian, had a really tough life, you know, and, and we and I remember we were starting to explore the idea of reincarnation. She said, every time I think about reincarnation, I just start crying because I do not want to be forced to do this again. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's the way that was her view of life. And I said, if it, if it doesn't bring you peace, then let it go, because I, I don't think we're sitting back here as punishment. I don't think it's like I, you didn't get it right. You got to go back and do it again. What your client said is uh, identical to what the Buddha said. I think she's on the right track here, mm-hmm. which is the Buddha said we are reborn only because we have a desire to be reborn. Right, right. And the moment we abandon the desire, we are liberate ourselves. Yeah, and it, it, you know, it's it's a tendency. It's a it's a it's a it's a constant thing within us. We love life. Oh, we wow. Underestimate the, the 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 person with the worst life imaginable on this planet will still not want to die. That is right. the power of life. Right. And so it is a very addictive, intoxicating thing. And so the, the trick is like, how do we convert it from being an addiction? Yeah. To something that we simply experience and, you know, enjoy. 
without the baggage of it. So, you know, I, you, I, I'm so glad you said that. I've never heard it put that way because it's always been to me. It's been put like, it's like a, almost like a punishment. It's like, mm-hmm. you, you got to keep, you got to stay on this wheel. But what you're saying is it's self-inflicted. It's like, we want this. We keep coming back because we want yes. to do it. And as soon as we stop wanting to do it, we don't do it. That was the great insight of the Buddha. I think that is why I think he's, we worship him as God. The Hindus worship him as God, even yeah. though he rebelled against Hinduism. So, because that is a great truth uh, that he said. Yeah. That our desire propels us every second of uh, in our lives. Mm-hmm. He said if you, the moment you can, like, you know, you engage, but you detach. It's a very, right. that's the letting go principle. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't get, you don't come back. That's what yeah. he said. I, I'm wow. Okay. That, that's something I'm going to, I got to take for it and let other people know, because I think that's a big mis- misunderstanding of the idea of reincarnation. Um, now I, we didn't talk about this, but I, I want to talk about your book, three lives in search of bliss. Cause I, I tell you, I, I listened to it again this week and it, it's just so brilliant. I love the way you, you integrate all these ideas that we've talked about here into a very short uh, story. That's got so many layers of, of depth to it. Um, Thank you. So thank you, you for your kind words. I, 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 yeah, I mean, you you know, I, I listened to it again. I'm like, man, this guy knows he knows the Quran, he knows the the Hindu scriptures, you know, you know the the, the New Testament, you, you the ideas of reincarnation and rebirth and and desire. You know, we, you just I, I just realized now as you said that, and I don't want to give away the end of the, of the book, but you know, as we get to the point where it's like I don't have the desire, I don't have the need to do this anymore, that that we can escape it. So. um where did the kind where did the idea for the book you know come from? How did how did you come up with it? I uh, there was no specific uh, event or you know uh, uh, phenomenon something that happened that sparked the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way it happened was uh, there were the, it, I think in some sense it was a culmination of things I had been doing for about ten years prior to that, mm-hmm. which I you know with my birth of my daughter I started reading a whole lot of philosophy, asking questions. And a lot of it was very personal. I was not engaging with other people. I did not have a teacher. I was just reading books and sort of educating myself. Mm-hmm. And it all, I think, came together one particular year, the year I wrote the book. And this thought started bubbling in my head. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, what is a creative way of expressing, uh, expressing some of these ideas? And I love stories. I love reading books, right? And I said, if, can I write a book? I'm not a writer by any stretch of imagination, but I said, if I can somehow uh, write a, a, a story, simple story, that uh, narrates some of, you know, through the narration brings out some of these principles, that would be great. So it started with no expectations in mind. Actually, in fact, I did not even expect to finish the book. So I I let these thoughts bubble in my head for, I would say, a good part of maybe six, seven months. And then I remember it was around a similar time, December, holidays. I took two weeks off from work and I already had like a week uh, in in that month for, for the Christmas week. I sat down and wrote it in three weeks. Mm. The, and it seems incredible that, you know, say somebody can write 200. I wrote 250 pages and sort of cut it down to 150. How can you write 250 pages in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a month? It's just built up. I mean, I kind of knew the sentences. Some of these sentences were already in my head when I was yeah. writing, before I started writing. I, I, it, I think one of one time, once in a lifetime type of thing, experience. I mm-hmm. don't have that. You know, I don't feel that level of inspiration now. I haven't found that since yeah. right more but you know i just surrendered to the moment at that time yeah uh in terms of the ideas i expressed i feel uh i i i have read that book and i read that book myself recently 
Mm-hmm. and i feel like i have evolved uh, quite a bit since then yeah. not to say that i you know deny any of the you know uh, concepts that i wrote there i just said i feel like i've a little more nuanced take on something and i do i'm thinking i should take it and not rewrite it but expand it i um well first of all like i said you came out of the blue i don't even know how you found me you said you know i want to send you this book and like for you to read it and give me your thoughts on it and i was like it was it's brilliant and you you told me at the time you distilled it down so it's it's very short but you know it's funny because um i had bernardo castro on a little while ago and he wrote a book called more than allegory and he talks about in, in his work about sometimes truth has to be expressed through myths it has to be it, it's 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 ineffable it can't be really put into words and he has to put it and and in and actually in his book uh materialism is why materialism is baloney he ends it with a story like a creation myth that's that's great i loved it and that's how i kind of view your book i think you had to be expressed through the story and then and and, it, and every time i read it and i've read it like three or four times I get something else out of it. It goes to another level. And I was, I just finished it this week and I'm like, oh yeah, the ending. I, I know I really got the ending better than I had gotten it before. Thank you. So, I I uh, remember one of my stated objectives when I wrote the book was I did, did not want anything it, it to look prescriptive. Right, right. right? I, the idea was to just lay it out. Mm-hmm. and it spark a sort of a thought process yeah in a person and 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 did not want to be opinionated or you know very specific about something although i feel like the it has got a very strong buddhist uh, uh tinge to it uh, yeah. yeah and i i you know i i was uh, i i am still and i was very much a, a, a strong buddhist at heart when mm-hmm. i wrote it and i think it that influenced me but but our idea was to be sort of uh uh sort of stream of consciousness um and tell the story we yeah. i think by nature we humans are storytellers and listeners to stories we love stories we love telling stories our lives are so, stories our lives are stories yes yeah so think, you know yeah, one yeah. thing i i want to say though um you know i talked to a lot of people that, that that claim that they channel books you know and i just interviewed someone yesterday that she's written several books and she says they're all channeled i think your book is inspired Um I don't think it came from Srini it, it came from somewhere higher. I agree. Um I so yeah I I think it's 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 great and I I want to encourage people it's it's a it's a really short read it's it's like you said about 150 pages but um it it really impacted my life I as I was reading it and, and it's funny because I was realizing I got it before Shane had passed away so it was before I was really on the on the journey that I'm on now and reading it again now it impacted me in a different way so it's one of those things that every time you read it it's going to hit you from a little bit different angle thank you for saying that i'm i'm glad uh, you continue to like it um the story of how i found you uh i you know i did a very simple thing i went and looked at deepak chopra's books i'm a fan, i was and i'm still a fan of deepak chopra i love his books mm-hmm. and you had written a review on deepak chopra's book i think one of deepak chopra's books. oh okay okay so i saw your name and i said if uh, brian likes deepak maybe he will like my book and he might be more inclined to read it and be more sort of understanding of where it came from the the book that i wrote uh, i showed it to a couple of publishers i was living in bangalore at the time mm-hmm. and they said this book is not readable this is not publishable 
Hmm. They said this does does not lack it lacks a plot. There is no arc. There is no like characters. You, you know, you start some character, you don't do justice to it. You keep moving on. <laughs> and you know, you, you know, I said that oh, the point of the story is not the characters. It's actually what happens to them, right? Mm-hmm. And, but I, I I concede the that uh, this is not like. Classic storytelling. In the- it's, it's not the uh, the hero's journey. Uh, yes. Well, it isn't. It isn't. You know, it, it, it's a yeah. It's it's different. So it's, the, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. It's it's a it's it is a journey. It's absolutely a, a journey. And and I think uh, as I said, I I find it to to be brilliant. And you know, the thing is, um, I think about my life now, and I think about we talked about these formative events, right? And so you saw that I I. Uh, reviewed a book of Deepak Chopra. You sent me this book. We've been friends now for, you know, nine, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've really influenced my life a lot. Okay. So we're, we're Facebook friends and I'll be writing something. I'm like, okay, Serena's not going to like this. Cause um, you know, I, you just, you really calm me down in, in a lot of ways. And I love your, your wisdom and your, um, and your compassion and the way you, you know, you live your practice. And you, you know, you talked about the book being, you know, maybe more Buddhist or whatever, it reminded me, um, I love C.S. Lewis. I, I, I read him. I think I've read, read everything he's ever written, but he talks at one time about the Tao. He, uh, and I think he pronounces it the Tao, but the T-A-O. And he says, this is the eternal truth. Mm-hmm. And he said, one of the things is people would criticize Jesus or Christianity because there was nothing new there. Mm-hmm. And he says, there is no new moral truth. All moral teachers do is remind us what we already knew. Mm-hmm. And as we look at all these faiths and we put them in categories, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, then we say, well, this is more like, no, no there's one truth. There's, mm-hmm. there's literally one truth mm-hmm. and all these things are different ways of expressing it. Um, which is why I don't, I don't call myself Christian anymore. And I've studied Buddhism, but I've, I've never taken the vow. So I don't call myself a Buddhist. I, there's things about Hinduism that I've found recently that I absolutely love. I'll never forget the Brahman, Atman, mm-hmm. you know, thing. And I'll take that with me. Mm-hmm. And as human beings, we're allowed to do that. Yes. And in fact, we should be doing that. Yeah. The the most practical goal, I mean, we, we believe we are being practical when we go in search of like, you know, we want to get into college, we want to have a career, I want to make money, I want to you know, buy, you know, this or whatever. Like we have these things we call practical. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it sort of comes from this belief that we are very limited uh, beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is all I can do. Like when you, when you say there is Brahman or there is this idea of God, this exalted, you know, uh, idea of God that's going to give you great joy. You say, oh, wait, it's very, you know, complex philosophy. And I am not capable of that. I, I'm a very simple person and I, I, I can only do this, which is fine. You know, which is nothing wrong with that. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the most practical goal? I mean, yes, you can, you know, you can buy a new car, you can get a new phone, whatever. Yeah. What we find, like, this is very cliched. We all know this. Like, mm-hmm. when we buy something, the the joy, you know, only lasts for so long. Right. Then we have to find the next thing. And this 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 treadmill we are, that we are on, we will get tired. And then at you know some point, depending on you know who we are, you know, whether it's in our forties or fifties, you know, unhappiness is bound to set in. It is, mm-hmm. it is no surprise. So the question is then, what is the most practical goal? What all these things that we consider practical are not getting us anywhere, and so we are saying philosophy is not practical. It's not, but I feel I feel like it's the most practical thing one can do because the most practical goal in human existence is to find peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. it is the most practical you know goal if you think about it, because mm-hmm. that is what we are trying to do when we do the other things. Yeah, no one goes to work. For the fun of it, I mean, at the root of it, is that am I going to be okay? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question is, you know, to find peace. Uh, and you know, 
so i i feel like that is one way to look at philosophy and uh, or you know invest in so you know we don't even have to make it complicated and you know, read all the books out there all we have to do is start examining our own experiences right yeah. what makes me conscious you know what makes me you know uh, see the world a certain way we ask these questions i mean these very simple questions you know give us like enormous mileage yeah you know it's interesting as you you know what you were saying i was thinking about the idea of people pursuing things you know and and i think that's why rich people tend to be the most miserable people on the planet yes. because when we're when we don't have those things we can keep telling ourselves well as soon as i get that as soon as i get that i'll be happy but when they get all that stuff and they sit around and they look at their lives and they're like i'm still not happy then they're the most miserable people because there's nothing left to reach for. Right. And I want to kind of close this, you know, because you said that I was thinking about the words of Jesus because I, I still a follower of Jesus. And Jesus said, store for yourself, tre- you know, treasures in heaven where moth, you know, thieves cannot break in and moths cannot, you know, uh, just corrupt and, you know, they can't, it can't rust. I mean, Jesus is like store up treasures in heaven. So again, as a Christian, we were thinking literally we're going to have boxes of gold when we get there, but it's really this, it's this inner peace. It's growing ourselves. That is the most practical thing. That is the only thing that really matters is peace. You can have everything else. And if you don't have peace, you've got nothing. Completely agree. The kingdom of God is within you is what Jesus said. Yeah. I think that is, you know, true. I mean, that, that those are words to live by. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a great way to end. I, I want to say, Srini, I, I really appreciate you doing this extended interview with me. Um, you know, this, this is really the first time we sat down and talked face to face and all the time we've we've done been doing this. But we need, need to come back. We need to do this again. I, I absolutely will. I've always wanted to do this. And I can think of no better person to have this conversation than with you. I feel safe. I feel like, you know, I will be understood. And you know, if I'm saying something wrong, I know that you will, you know, uh, uh, guide me. You know? and so I feel very comfortable having these conversations. Awesome. And awesome. I, I, absolutely. You know, we, we should do this again. Absolutely. Thank you, Srini. You have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I want to make it really easy for you to reach me. So just send me a text to 31996 and simply text the word GROWTH. G-R-O-W-T-H. In fact, you can right now just say, hey, Siri, send a message to 31996. And when Siri asks you what you want to send, just say growth. You can do the same thing with OK Google. Thanks a lot. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to Grief to Growth. Brian hopes that you find this episode helpful and will come back for future episodes. Brian's best-selling book, Grief to Growth, Planted Not Buried, is a great resource for anyone who is coping with grief or knows someone who is. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, there are three things you can do to help. The first is to share the podcast with someone that you think it will help. The second is to go to iTunes, rate, and review the episode. The third way you can support the podcast is by becoming a patron. Head over to www.patreon.com slash grief to growth. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash grief, the number two, growth, and sign up to make a small monthly donation. Patrons get access to exclusive bonus content and knowledge that you are helping to spread the message of grief to growth. For more about Brian and grief to growth, visit www.grieftogrowth.com. Hey there, if you like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you liked. If you didn't like this episode, 
come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you didn't like. Go to grieftogrowth.com slash community and look for talk about the podcast. I'll see you there.